My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. I remember once seeing a t-shirt in the Florida tackle shop with the message, The Ultimate High, a tarpon on fly. Having taken big tarpon on more conventional light multiplier outfits and live baits, I have to say that that is one challenge which for me at least would definitely stray outside the boundaries of pleasurable experience, but each to his own. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, the prospects of a tarpon in UK waters are remote, though I believe one was actually recorded in Irish waters some years ago. The home waters equivalent would undoubtedly have to be the Pollock, which for those who have experienced them on ultralight tackle will come as no surprise, and for those that so far haven't, then truly you don't know what you're missing. One man who most definitely is in an excellent position to comment, having taken very many good specimens on the flight, plus other saltwater species too, is the man I'm linking up here with today, Alan Everington. Now the primary reason for doing this interview is to talk through the incredible prospects, world record-breaking prospects even, for saltwater fly fishing in Scottish waters. But before we do that, can we start by taking a closer look at your introduction to fly fishing and the type of fishing that now fills up the majority of your leisure time? Fishing's been a, been a passion all my life. I, uh, well over 40 years I've enjoyed fishing, and I don't know where it came from, but as a small boy, aged about four, got an idea I wanted to make a wee fishing rod and go to a stream at the, the farm pond at the end of the road. But my first real fishing was, um, you know, five, six years old, had an uncle, gave me an old fiberglass rod, which was actually a river rod, but where I could, the fishing near me was the sea, I grew up by the sea. So all my fishing as a boy was in the sea, we used to fish the coastline for saith, which was our name for coal fish, and for cod, and for mackerel in season, and for flatties, and really liked my fishing every day of the summer holidays, that was what I did, and really that was what was available, and just loved my fishing, and I think as my life went on, what I did was I, I got opportunity to do different kinds of fishing, the theme was always fishing, but got opportunity to different places and different countries and different venues and, and, and that brought with it you meet new people and you learn new methods and, and I've tried all sorts of things so from sort of coastal fishing when I, I got a bit older and started working I started going out in boats and thought this was great because the fish were bigger and we started fishing offshore and, and just some of the coastal boats in Scotland and then from there developed an interest in catching bigger fish, so started going fishing for skate up in the side of the mull. And in parallel to that, I started to go on holiday to America, so I'm doing some saltwater fishing in America, which is just sort of normal, traditional spinning and ledgering. And, and over there, I started buying some magazines and realising that they fly fish, and they fly fish for the bass that I was fishing for, rather than spinning. Some American holidays, I started doing some, uh, some bass fishing. And meanwhile, back in the UK, I've met people who do trout fishing and salmon fishing, and I've started to fly fish and learn to fly fish. And in America, they brought those two things together, the fly fishing and the saltwater fishing, so I started doing that in the States. And so I'm doing all these different kinds of fishing, depending on where I am and what's available to me, and learning all sorts of new things. And I think the theme that ran through all of that was it was really, it was really good to, you know, you, you see a fish for 40 years and maybe creates the impression that you just keep doing the same thing for 40 years. Within fishing, there's a huge amount of different things you can species and huge amounts of different techniques and huge amounts of different places you can go in wonderful landscapes and what was available to me. And ultimately, over time, I, 
Uh, I ended up realising that Scotland had a lot to offer. I was working all over the place and decided to come back here some 20 years ago just because it had so much to offer in terms of great salt water fishing. At that time, we had discovered uh, what we're going to talk about today, I think, which is the, the great pollock fishing and the toad fishing down in the Mark Alley. Um, I discovered that there was great salt water fishing up in the sound of Mull and also great salmon fishing in the rivers. And the wild brown trout fishing in Sutherland was just incredible for me. I just loved the landscape, loved the place. So I decided to pack up a job, come home to Scotland, luckily got another job, and, uh, and I've been living, working and fishing here ever since. And at different times what's happened is, is that all those different things cross over. You start using techniques that you learn in the sea, in fresh water, and similarly using a lot of fly fishing techniques and knowledge learned from those kind of fishes to take to salt water. And which is not unusual because you think they're sort of discovering new things and then you go overseas on holidays to places like British Columbia and you find that they've been doing these things for a long time, you know. You go to Scandinavia and find they've been fishing for saltwater species um, in the sea for a number of years, but we thought we were new for discovering it all here. So it's a real mix of things and hopefully it keeps it fresh for me and it's great to learn new things and do things in new ways and fishing's been a great blessing in my life. So You mentioned there the salmon fishing. But it wasn't simply a case of going out and fishing for them, because I know you took it to another level, inasmuch as you once did some guiding and instructing for a living. Well, I think like any of these stages I talked about, there are sort of different stages of life, depending on what time you have available to you, and where you are, and what fishing's available to you. You tend to try something, and it brings great pleasure. And what you do is you get interested in it. Similarly for, you know, when I first discovered salmon fishing, there was a guy who I worked with uh, was kind enough to take me down to the River Tweed and uh, I fished away and I loved the fact of, I loved fishing in the river and wading in the river. I loved the fact of seeing these fish rising and they're big fish and they're powerful fish and, and then I started catching them and they were difficult fish to catch and I liked the challenge. And so there started uh, 20 years and I'm still going salmon fishing every opportunity I get. And there's a huge amount to learn there. And what you learn there, and the same with trout fishing, a similar type of story. And just as you sort of feel you're, you're, you know, you're interested in something. And a great way to learn about something is to, you can do it two ways. One is learn from myself, which is just spending a lot of time in the water. Or two, fish with other people who've done it before you. And a lot of people are very kind with their knowledge to me over the years and, and shared that with me. Join clubs and trout fishing. I joined, uh, over the years I've been a member of many clubs. And you go along and you fish in outings and you learn from people who have been fishing a huge amount of experience and they're kind enough to pass that on. And the salmon fishing have had the same benefit along with some, or, or fishing with some great people. And where that all came together was about, uh, oh, 15 or so years ago, I, I was sitting thinking, what I'd be doing in my life? And I was thinking, the thing I enjoy most of my life is my fishing. So, uh, in order to do something with fishing, and I enjoy being out in the water. And I thought, well, m- maybe I'd, I'd like to sort of teach others my skills and my knowledge and pass it on, seeing it's been passed on to me, and, and like to spend a lot of time by the water. And so what I did was I started doing some courses, and eventually worked through different courses and different instructor qualifications as a fly fishing instructor, and then started guiding on, on known waters, and spent a dozen years on and off doing that in different places and thoroughly enjoying it and uh, used to do that through most of the summer season 
and then I'll go back to something of my traditional jobs that I do through the winter season. So it was just something that, it was just doing more of, of something I really liked and, and it brought me great pleasure. I just developed an interest and, and, and that interest just developed over a number of years. And I, had a, I mean, I've seen some great places in the world, I've seen some great places in Scotland and, and, and it's, it's funny looking back, most of the people who I have friendships with now and keep up with have met through fishing. And it's been a great pleasure and bonus in life, I guess. We first met some years ago. You and I were out aboard Ian Burrett's boat on your marks around the Mull of Galloway, particularly up along the western side, where you put on a demo of fly fishing for Pollock for the video camera, taking and releasing several IGFA Tippet world records in the process. Obviously, we're going to look at the whole subject of Tippet records a little later on, but as a sort of a lead-in, can you first talk us through how all that came about? So as boys, my brother and I used to fish the coastline down the west coast of Scotland, and where we were was mostly cod fishing and sea fishing, for a bit of an adventure, we'd go and we'd camp down the Mulla Galloway, which was a good journey of a, you know, two and a half, three hours on a bus. And when I first started driving, we'd get the car and we'd, we'd head away down there. And we actually went down there to fish for wrasses, cracking wrasses off the rocks, and we'd fish with a ragworm for wrasses. And we got these real specimen wrasses on, on light tackle. And one night, we caught a seven pound pollock, and we were just absolutely blown away. We just didn't realise fish like that were there. And so that, that was as we started pollock fishing off the shore, just, uh, the old fellas. And at that time we heard about Ian Burrett. We thought, well, if you can get these off the shore, the problem we had on the shore was landing them because you're fishing off the cliffs there and really difficult to land these big fish. We thought, if we get on a boat, that would be great. And we started to fish with Ian Burrett. And sure enough, we started getting these bigger fish and because we're on the boat, we had more chance of landing them. And Ian introduced us to completely new ways of fishing, you know, we talk about people passing on all their experience and knowledge and how it goes down to different generations. And, and Ian introduced us to the concept that, that you know, this idea of you have to fish in the bottom, you don't have to do that, guys, you can fish. And, and, and the first thing we did with Ian was we freelanced. And we didn't have any weights, we didn't have anything, we just had a, an e-limitation on there and we started catching fish with that. And from the very first day we fished with Ian, which must be about 20 years ago, which was ahead of its time at the time, on the first day, I remember, we, we freelined for, for the pot, and the second thing we did is we put everything back. And if you're going to take one for the pot, fine, but put them back, because then it'll be there next time. And this idea of catch and release, which was just starting in Scotland at that time, in freshwater, for trout and salmon, was quite novel and, and, and unique at that time in saltwater fishing. And that's how it was to be, and, and the pot fishing was tremendous, and we also did a lot of tote fishing down there. And we became regulars, and I was travelling down there every week or every other week for years and years and years, fishing away for the pollock. And the pollock were getting there, the, the class of the pollock down there, you know, it's double figure fish, great sport, and it was just tremendous sport. And almost separately, in parallel, of course, I'm, I'm still continuing in the evenings to trout fish, and I'm still continuing the weekends when I can to get on the rivers and salmon fish. And it wasn't until a wee bit later that somehow, all these different parts came together and we thought, I wonder if we can get one of these pork on a fly. So that was the recollections of, of meeting up with Ian Burrett down at the Mall Gallery with some great times and many years of good fishing down there. Obviously, fly fishing in the sea with the tides to contend with is a totally different concept to that in fresh water, even fishing on rivers. So presumably then a very steep learning curve with lots of trial and error at many levels to get it absolutely right, which I know you eventually did. 
So we're enjoying really good sport and pollock fishing. And the two techniques we're using is we're either freelining, which is just using the current to work a bait, no weights, no nothing, or we're using a, a float on a, a running line and letting it, you know, drop out 15 feet or so underneath a float and fishing away like that. And, and that's working fine for us and it's working good. Meanwhile, in parallel, we're starting to think, what are these fish feeding on? We know they're feeding down there in the mall. They're feeding on walls, which are a big sand deal. And these, these sand deals are, you know, 9 to 12 inches long. And we know they're feeding on there because we can see them, you know, in the, in the water. We can catch them. So we know that that's what they're feeding on. And so the, the thought would be when you're fishing an imitation down there, you're, you're fishing baits that imitate or are around what the bait fish is, which is lawns. And those lawns are there because of that unique characteristic that, that is down in the Mulligan. We've got these huge tide rips going through because you've got deep water coming up the North Channel, coming up into shallow water. And so, of course, when it comes over that lip of the shallow water at Loose Bay and then up the west coast of the Mull, what it's doing is the tide's running really fast. And it's coming from cold, deep water up into the convection currents of forcing all the bait up over that ledge. And doing it twice a day. So you get these huge tides, huge currents, and you've got these, these masses of, uh, good feeding by way of bait fish. And what that does is it means because it's that, it's a pretty unique thing on the west coast. It brings in fish to feed on it. So we're knowing that and experiencing that, but understanding that and thinking it through suggests that, well, well, maybe we can imitate that bait fish with a fly, with an imitation fly. And so then we just walked to barbers and we thought, well, what are the fish looking for? Well, the fish are looking for a fly that's about nine inches long, which is quite a big fly to chuck, you know. And so if you want to throw a, a fly sort of into the water here, what's an outfit you're going to need for that? Well, to throw a nine-inch fly that's, that's waterlogged and quite heavy safely, what you're going to need is you're going to need what are called an AFTM 9 to 12 weight rod. So... One being a very light rod and twelve being a very heavy single hand rod. You do get heavier for, for big tuna and stuff in the States. But basically look for a heavy rod to throw that heavy fly. And then you start thinking, well, where do we want to present that bait? If we put a floating line on that floats on the top of the water, it's going to present it in the top of the water. If we put on an intermediate line, it's going to take it below. And then you get different rates of sinking rates, which are measured in inches per second. So, Eight or nine inches per second is quite a fast sinking line that'll take your, your fly down. So, when we were bait fishing on free line, and what these baits are come down to maybe 15 feet, we know we're fishing in 20, 30 feet of water, we know that's where the bait fish are, where the sand eel are. So what we want to do is we want to aim to get it down that deep. But then you've also got to think about the tide. So it's slight water, there's no tide rip. But then you might have an eight knot tide streaking through there. When, when it's running fast. So you've got that working against your line trying to sink. So you might have a, what you think is a fast sinking line, but it's not going very deep at all. So what we found is the most versatile outfit was to use, to cast these big flies and present them as the bait should be presented, uh, as the fish would expect it to be presented. What we would do is we fish with a very fast sinking fly line and it would be heavier on a typically a 10, 11, 12 weight outfit and with these big flies uh, which imitate the sanding. And what we would do is we cast them out and we would, in order to count that the current, we'd count them down. 
So we know that it's like water, and if I count a I count a ten, it will go down for maybe ten feet. But we know in a heavy rip of a tide, it might only go down five feet, and eventually it might reach a point where it doesn't go down any deeper. But the the sinking line you're using time would allow us to to judge how it is. We could also change the cast. So rather than casting straight out so the line's tight when it lands, we could also throw lots of slack into the line when we cast it out the back of the boat. And so by casting that slack in, it stops the line tightening up in the fly too quick and it just sinks that much more effectively. So by doing this, what we're trying to do is we're trying to present a bait that looks like a sand deal at the right depth, in the right place, in the right way for the pollock to take interest in it. And of course the way pollock feed there is that they're lying up in the kelp, they're a predator, huge eyes, they're lying up in the kelp, they're waiting for that prey fish to come above them, then they come out of the kelp, take the prey fish, turn and come back down into the kelp. So in terms of doing that, what we're doing is we're letting it sink, we're bringing it along, and interestingly what you would do is you would bring that bait along, and you would, if you pull it in a straight line at the same depth, not an awful lot happens, but as soon as you change the depth, as soon as you make that fly go up or indeed go down, it seems to induce a take from the pollock and it will actually take it. So you can pull it, pull it, pull it, pull it, pull it, but it wasn't until you lifted or changed the depth, which is again the fish is getting this idea that something's changed and it's not going to get another chance to take that bait. So what we're doing here is we're understanding what was going on with the fish and the fish's environment. And funnily enough, if you go back to trout fishing, when you learn the trout fish, that's the way we teach people to trout fish. You know, I learned the trout fish by people explaining to me what was going on and how the trout feeds. And what we're trying to do is fit in with the, the life cycle of how that trout feeds and what it's feeding on and how it lives and where it lives and how it acts. And just taking that sort of way of working things through and taking it into salt water. And it wasn't quite scientific at the time, was that? But looking back, that was what we were doing. And all of a sudden we started catching fish. So we got over any idea about technical issues were got over and after that it became all these little subtle things like, you know, making sure you just don't pull it straight over a long distance. It was it was those movements up or down that were making a difference. And if you wanted something to go up and down, if you added weight to the fly, what you found was that the fly would, would move up or down. It wouldn't sit on just a straight trajectory. So all of these things we sort of worked through. And of course found out <laughs> after inventing many different flies, which was great fun, and tying them all up, because of course there wasn't such a fly in the UK, we found uh, eventually after, because at that time there wasn't much in the way of the internet, was just starting and stuff. And, but what we did find from books is that, of course, people like the Klaus and Minnow, people of all Klaus had invented all this and understood all of this years ago, albeit in a river, uh, the Klaus and Minnow came about, but for, for exactly the same Went through exactly the same working out process. They had rediscovered these things. But you know, there was great pleasure in doing something that hadn't been done before. There was great pleasure in working it out. Albeit many things you work out and think are new, you find later somebody else has, has done it. There was great pleasure in that. But what we were doing down there, the, the great thing about the Mulligannery was that the quality of the fishing was just superb. You know, that there are not many places in the world where you've got a double figure predatory fish the way that they take, the way that they feed, um, and you were getting huge numbers. We were getting on average 80 fish a day, and these are good quality, five, six, seven pounds fish, they all double in there, and, and you're getting this all day in this great sport, and it's on a fly rod, which is a very direct way of, of being in contact and playing a fish, you know. 
And of course, what it did was it took what was fishing that we really enjoyed, and it just it just added something completely new to the whole thing, and thoroughly enjoyed it. And a reasonable number of these fish, had he bothered to claim them, could have been official IGFA tippet records. Obviously, there are choices to be made regarding tippets, which is fundamental to what we're talking about here. So let's now explore that particular strand of the equation. What we're doing here is, is specifically we're fishing big flies in the mill. And the reason is because, you know, as an old saying used to be said in the boats, that a big bait is a big fish. And funnily enough, that was my experience, you know, that there are small baits there as well as they vary in size a different sand deal. But the bigger lawns imitations seem to, to attract a bigger fish. So turning that sort of thing over on a fly rod safely means that you need to have something that's reasonably robust. So if you were to tie on six pound straight through nylon, if you think of the way a fly rod generates energy, what it does is it's a lever and a spring, it bends and it throws the line essentially, it stops and the energy transfers through the fly line. It just wouldn't turn over, it wouldn't present. And so what we do is we use tapered leaders that start really thick and go thin. And what they do is they carry that energy down. And at the end, what you can do is you can put whatever tippet is the end part of the, the nylon. Any tippet that you think is appropriate for fishing down. There's various advantages and disadvantages. Typically, if you use a very, very thick tippet, it has got the advantage that if you hook something, it's not going to break. It's also got the disadvantage, though, that if you do hook something that's not going to break and the polyp does what polyp do, which is go into the kelp, you're going to anchor to the bottom. And I learned my lesson uh, the hard way. I had a brand new rod, which I think it cost me nearly a month's wages at the time. And it was a Sage RPLXI, and it was my pride and joy, a 9 foot 9 weight. And I cast out and I was fishing with a 20 pound tippet, 20 pound break string tippet, or maybe even more than that. But I wasn't going to lose these doubles. I was going to keep these fish on. And I cast out, got into the fish, fish goes into the kelp and it anchored the boat. And what do you do? I'm not going anywhere. The fish is not going anywhere, but the boat's drifting on the tide. And eventually the fish was pulling and I'm pulling and nobody was giving up. And the rod just, it didn't break, it exploded. Just the tension that was on that rod, it just exploded. So there comes a point where you know, really, the whole issue with these, these pollock is to turn them quickly. If you can turn them quickly, they're coming, in, they're coming out of the kennel, taking the bait fish and going back down. If you can turn them quickly before they go down again, then you've got half a chance of landing them. And after that, you can play them above the kennel. If they get down and wedge themselves in the kennel, it's, it's done. So there's many, many big fish hooked. But that's why many of the big, big fish don't get landed. So then if you go too light, Light's great because it, you know, it's harder for the fish to see, the bait moves more freely. So there's all these things. But if you go too light, what's going to happen is it's just going to break you. So somewhere in the middle there, there's a sort of, there's, there's half technique which is turning the fish quickly. And the other part of it is once you do get it hooked and if you do turn it quickly, it's just playing it in a way in between not breaking the, the tippet and it going in. And where we ended up was somewhere between 12 and 15 pounds was the optimal point where you were getting, it wasn't too big that it was skiing fish, and you could break off if you needed to, but you had a right good sporting chance if you turned the fish early to actually land it. And in terms of materials, there's lots of clever nylons out there now, there's, uh, there's copolymers, um, there's fluorocarbons, um, and fluorocarbons are probably scientific, you know, they have a refractive index, 
which is lower than water, which means that basically it can be seen, which is what the, the, the manufacturers claim for it. So people use these fluorocarbons quite heavily across all saltwater fly fishing, and a lot of them are quite solid in the sense that they have good abrasion resistance. You get a lot of nylons which are built to be abrasion resistant, so if they're up against rocks and stuff, they don't break. You get a lot of nylons that are built for suppleness, so you get good transfer of energy, etc. And if it's supple, then your bait's going to fish more effectively than an island that is stiffer. So you get all these things, and I have to say, the main thing we found was stay away from coloured nylons. For some reason, any coloured nylons didn't work. Clear nylons worked, and, you know, that was the main learning we had. Apart from that, the fish didn't seem to be that choosy. We used to use very supple nylons, which didn't cast particularly well, but what they did was allow those baits to move in the current. And we're going for between 12 and 15 pounds. But all these thinkings and all these trials and errors just came about by, by just working things through and probably learning from our mistakes. The tippet records came about because, you know, a lot of people started showing interest at first saying, what are these people doing, you know, and why are they doing it? And we're just saying, we're just trying something new. And, and, and someone says, well, has anybody else ever done this? And someone went and looked up the ICFA records and they saw that there were pollen records, but ICFA do all the records by the breaking strain of the tippet. And so there were tippet records for two kilos, four kilos, six kilos, and they didn't just use sort of like, you know, and then any weak nylon. So what we set out to do was, um, we thought, well, I wonder how the pollock fishing in the Muller Gallery compares to the pollock fishing in the rest of the world. And most of the records at that time for pollock were held over in Scandinavia. And so what we did was we fished with different tippets. Now, if you get a double on a two-pound tippet, it was just, you know, your chances were not good. But if you got a three or four-pound or five-pound fish, you, you, you had a fighting chance. So what we did over two or three days was, was involved, if I remember, you, you were up with this in those two or three days, is just, just to see what would happen. We started fishing with specific ICFA qualified tippets and just seeing how we got on. Of course, sometimes we got broke and sometimes we didn't. And we managed to break, I think, three egg for world records in two days. And, and by quite a margin, often the fish were twice the size of the, the recorded world records. And I think what that, that tells us is that, you know, we were fishing in a world class fishery for great game fish, plenty of them, great sport. And here it wasn't a doorstep, more or less. We could actually travel to it. So we're making the best of a resource here in the west coast of Scotland. What about any particular fish or fishing days that stand out above the rest? I think there was a couple of really good days where I took some guys, quite a lot of people used to approach me at that time and they would say, you know, what are you doing? And so, so it was interesting, people who had fly fished but never fished in the sea before, or people who'd fished in the sea before but had never fly fished before, and they go, can we have a go at this hour? And what you would do is you'd take them out and you'd introduce them to sort of what a fly rod was, how it worked, and they'd cast out. And all of a sudden you're seeing guys who, you might fish for weeks in a river trying to catch a salmon and they might get one fish or something and all of a sudden you just see them, you know, laughing with glee and just, you know, they're getting a dozen great quality fish in a day and you just see them coming away, you know, exhausted at the end of the day and really thoroughly enjoying it. And similarly, the guys who are sort of diagonal sea fishermen who have been legend off the coast all of a sudden they're fishing the tackle effectively is no weight because it leaks in the fly line. 
You're in direct control with these fish. And of course, they're great quality fish. So there's a few guys I remember, you know, just the looks in their faces and, and just how they enjoyed doing it. And there were some, many of those great days fishing with others and, and just seeing how they enjoyed it. And there were some big fish days too. I mean, the elusive double was that we used to, we had had double on freeline tackle. So what we were doing tackle-wise, what we found as well was my lesson learned with fishing with what was at that time a, a very modern, innovative, high-modulus carbon rod was, that's great, but if you're fishing with a, with, a, with a fish that wants to get down deep quick and you have to stop it quickly, you have to start, you know, adapting your tackle. So that day stands out to me as well from the point of view that you've got to think about your tackle. That was a, I remember that day, but that fish that stopped me that day was a big double. And there was a few of those. And, and, and I didn't actually, I got a lot of fish around eight, nine pounds, but I never ever landed a double on a flat. I landed them on, on all sorts of traditional kit, on float stuff, and on that, I think I had a fish, fish up to 17 pounds, but uh, never in a flight. Although I believe others have now done so since my time, but. That was always what we were seeking for, you know, these, these big fish. And lots of time we knew from the fish that were on and from our experience that these were big fish, but just couldn't land them. And they started to adapt a tackle as well. Tackle was going to be key to, to actually sort of breaking that, that cycle. And that was about choosing the right rods for landing the fish, rather than a lot of rods at the time were designed for casting the fly. And we started thinking about rods to, to land fish and, and getting involved with reels. I used to use that to reverse reels, and what the reels were doing was they had a drag that would actually work at such pressure. Because these fishes, it's all really quick, the fish is on, it's pulling really hard, you get one big, maybe two big runs, and it's not like when you're fishing for other saltwater species, where you're in shallow, clear water, and the fish are running for a long distance, and they're getting multiple runs. This is all concentrated with pollock in that one take and, and go. And so it's very quick. Um, in, in comparison to other, other species. Much of this talk so far has been aimed at the pollock fishing, but what other species have you and do you also catch in the sea? And what are the principles of fly fishing generally in salt water? The, the, there was a time when, when suddenly we realised that you know, we're having great sport here, what land and salmon fishing and trout fishing and freshwater fly fishing, taking that principle, trying to understand how the fish is feeding, and how to present the bait to it, and then working it all the way back to what's the appropriate tackle, and trying to fit in a fly into the life cycle of the fish, and the prey fish that the fish is feeding on. We applied that to Pollock and it worked, so we thought, one of the items we could apply to just for the, for the fun of it itself, we went to try other species, and, and tried many species, some just to do it, so caught mullet and fly, caught wrasse and fly, caught dollfish and fly, caught cod and fly, um, mackerel and fly and then what you do is you find that some species you know they don't particularly lend themselves to they, they don't play particularly well on a fly rod compared to a pollock it wasn't as good fun and it wasn't sporting so what we would then find was but there were some other fish that, that were playing in there by that time bass fishing um, had been a big thing in the states and in fact I've been, been fishing for shrimpers over on the east coast of the states um, on holidays and so they started looking for bass fishing in the UK, and there is some good bass fishing in Scotland. Um, in fact, there's some on the, on the loose bay side of the mall. So bass became a sort of target species, so a tremendous game fish. And also, uh, mackerel on light 
tackle and a green fish, you know. So there were some fish were, were proven to be really good sport. And indeed, what you would think of as a river fish, which is sea trout, which I fished for for years in the river, by accident up north, we were fishing for mackerel one night, and we hit sea trout, and we found that obviously the sea trout were sitting in the sea, waiting to run the rivers, and you could actually catch the sea trout in the sea. And, you know, for many modest sums to buy permits for them, because they're a permitted fish in the estuaries, but very modest sums of money you could fish for them in the sea in comparison to the rivers. And we're getting tremendous sport fishing with light five, six weight fly rods. Um, and in fact, that on that trip, we only had trout rods with us. So we're fishing in the sea with trout rods and sinking lines and, and getting, you know, sea trout up to five and a half pounds. And again, thinking, why did we not think of this before? This is great sport. And finding out later that in Scandinavia, they've been doing this for many years, you know, and they do a lot of that. And then you go and holiday to someone like Canada and you find that they're doing a lot of the, the salmon fishing in a similar way in some of the estuaries in, in British Columbia. So again, nothing's ever new, but nobody seemed to be doing it in Scotland. And then the other, sort of, as well as species, what, what we started doing was looking at other locations. So if you look at other locations up and down Scotland, we knew there was pollock getting caught off the, the west coast of Sky. We knew there was pollock getting caught up in the, the top end of the Clyde that were good quality off the south of Arm. There's a little island called Pladen. There's a, there's a, a, a place there. There's, there's a, a right head of pollock. And, and so we started going to these other venues and fishing for pollock. And the interesting thing was, all of a sudden the flies we're using in the mud just didn't work. I was thinking about it and I thought, back to basics here. We're making the assumption that they're feeding on the same thing they're feeding on down there. And when we spend a bit of time working out what they're feeding on, then that meant the fly could change. And when we found that they were actually feeding on sprats in that particular instant, in small heron. And then what that does is it means you're fishing with a much smaller fly. And if you're fishing with a smaller fly, you can fish with a lighter outfit because you don't need such heavy gear because it's not such a heavy fly. And so you start fishing with eight and nine weights. And you start fishing not with fast action rods designed for casting, but start to use, you know, rods that are more like the old fiberglass rods that bend right through that can absorb these lunging takes. And then you start using good drags that are not going to protect the tippets and are giving them. And all of a sudden, what you're finding is, is that you're just applying that logic to work out what works in that particular species and what happens in that particular place. And the tackle falls out of that. And it's all just about taking that basic thing about trying to understand it from the environment you're fishing. And that was always a great pleasure when I look back of what we were doing there, is, is actually just applying principles of working out what was happening in the environment. And once you cracked it, you suddenly get into the fish. And you know, there's some great places up the west coast of Scotland, and, and we're fishing with tiny little flies to get plumbed, you know. And it's not that the fish are small, it's just that that's what they're feeding on up there, this small area. And the fish haven't grown yet because the heron are moving the heron and the macro are moving ahead of the macro shows and the sprats are moving north to south over the summer. So by the time in the north, they still haven't grown on. So, so you start getting an appreciation for how all these fish are moving around the coastline as well and migrating. As was said earlier, despite catching fish which have well beaten a range of IGFA tippet records on the day, none of those fish were ever claimed. So what's the thinking there? I think at the time what we did was that we were kind of looking to benchmark whether what we were doing was anybody else doing it, because we thought this was great. And a lot of people were asking about it, 
And to try and sort of benchmark what we were doing against what was happening in the rest of the world. And as I said, these fish were coming out often double the size of the existing records. So it was really good that ITRA had that benchmark. I don't think the reason we did it was to break the records. I think the reason was to get an idea about where we stood in terms of the Mullet Galloway was really a world-class fishing resource, you know. I think the second reason was is that from the first day that we went out again, we, we fished catch and release, and, and we always just kept doing that. So those fish were going back, and that's why it stayed that way for 20-odd years of my experience. You know, those big fish are still there, and it's still a good fishery because the fishermen down there have, on the whole, generally protected and conserved the resource. So the fish were going back, and ICFA had a couple of rules. One was, I think, you couldn't weigh the fish on the boat. You had to take it ashore, and if you took it ashore, the fish wasn't going back. So from that point of view, we never... We weighed the fish, but we, we weren't up for taking them ashore. So because we didn't do that, we didn't register the record. But it was it was good to know that those fish were there, and we, we had the pictures. And we just knew we were lucky to be fishing in such good water and to have it so close to hand, so... Having made an IGF here typically myself for a coal fish, which I was intending to keep anyway for skate bait up in the Firth of Long, I appreciate that you do need to weigh the fish on scales that can be certified, as well as provide photographs with some sort of measuring device in shot, plus witness statements, tippet samples and the like. It isn't simply a case of just go out and catch a fish, and that's it. So catch and release is a much easier approach if records don't appeal. Anyway, moving on. What other saltwater fly fishing have you either done or do you have in the pipeline? I'm very fortunate there's much going on in my life and uh, a very rich life and time seems to be coming ever rarer. And with it, so with the time you have, you tend to, you know, there's a lot of fishing to choose from. One of the things we started doing in, uh, down the Mulligallery was actually toper great fishing. We're catching tope on really lightweight outfits down there. Beautiful fish. And getting taupe on fly would be something I'd really like to spend a bit of time doing. I know that, that, that others have uh, recently you know, spent a lot of time doing that and I've got them. And I think what a tremendous fish that would be. I'd like to give that a go, getting them on fly. And that's not an easy thing to do because, you know, the way, just the very nature of the feeding on mackerels, it's going to be big flies, getting them down to where they're feeding. But there are some marks where the taupe come out at the back end, down in the mull, like sand head and stuff where they come in and it's like water, you could get a fly down to them, no problem. So, and of course, flies get advantage because when a normal bait wouldn't move, when you're fly fishing, you know, you can, you can move that bait much more easily. And, and uh, so that's, that's something like trying this country. And, and I've been very fortunate to go overseas to fish in holidays and stuff and, and really like uh, British Columbia and got to grips over there with some saltwater fly fishing. So I was fishing for, for species like Dolly Varden, Fishing for steelhead in the estuaries, uh, summer steelhead, uh, fishing for salmon, and uh, fishing for a conventional sort of saltwater fish, mooching, which is very similar to trolling for Greenland, but doing it in the sea. So again, there's a sort of a link of a technique of freshwater being used in the sea. But you know, there's just uh, so many fishing venues and yeah, not enough time, not enough time. So. And continuing just to enjoy some of the, the great fishing that's local to me in the time I do have, you know. Um, on the west coast of Scotland, there's some great saltwater fishing and very affordable for sea trout and estuaries. Um, that's great fishing on trout tackle, you know, five, six pound fish. You're getting the shallow water, you're getting great runs out of them. 
as well as, as you know, it's the end of the summer season just now up here, so I'm well prepared for the team in October, which has been great, you know, some great quality fish coming back, and again, through conservation, the fishing's getting better every year. Best spring for many years, so I'm thoroughly enjoying all the fishing just now. Right, a bit of a loaded question for you now. As an ardent salmon fly fisherman, how well do pollock compare to what many purists see as the ultimate freshwater fishing experience? Leastways, here in the UK. <laughs> so here's the thing. Because I like roast potatoes doesn't mean to say I don't like chips. And I think they're both great things, and but for different reasons. What I like with salmon fishing is I like being in the moving water. I like the act of spade casting with double-handed rod. It's, it's just a great thing, great way to present a fly. I like thinking about how that salmon is moving to the river, why would take what it's taking. Of course, salmon aren't eating, so you're not fitting into the life cycle. And when you hook a salmon, you're hooking them in a river, and what they're doing is they're running huge distances, you know, 100-yard runs, etc. And typically, you know, you're getting double-figure fish often, and often bigger fish than you would pollock, um, and they're incredibly strong fish. So, you know, is that a great experience for me fishing? Yeah. Uh, what's the downside of salmon fishing? Well, the downside of salmon fishing is, is that you can go many, many days fishing without getting any fish at all. And it's very seasonal. You know, there's a specific time of year when those fish are prime when they're in from the sea and they're there. So if, if I look at pollock fishing, on the other hand, pollock fishing, most days when you go pollock fishing, um, unless it's really bright or the, the, the water's muddy or murky, pollock are usually pretty obliging. Down in Mull, particularly, they're pretty resident to areas, so some of these back areas you're talking about, that, you know, they're resident to those areas, they're in known places and they're on reefs, so we can find them. And typically you might catch 50, 60 fish in a day, so you're getting plenty of sport, and there's a chance you might get some really big fish, some big doubles in there, so that is really good. Playing the fish is, uh, you know, it's again, it's a different take from a salmon. Salmon takes can be really powerful, but they tend to be, they fish for a lot, you know, a, it can be 20 minutes, to be an hour playing a big fish. Whereas with pollock, it's all over and done with and in a very short space of time, maybe four or five minutes. So it's very different. It's very, very different. And they're both great. And you know what I've found is that when you do something for a long time, all of a sudden you're sitting in the boat, you've been in the boat, you're doing a lot of boat fishing and, and you're fishing for pollock or you're fishing for whatever. And all of a sudden it's really nice to just go to the river. Or if you're on the river for a long time and you haven't really had a really good day getting lots of fish, it's really good to go back and, and catch pot. Or if you've done all of that, it's really nice to go and catch wild brownies up in Sutherland where you have to think about it and, and fish really small flies, small dry flies and stuff. So for me, it's all about, they all, I don't know if I'm just a born optimist, but they've all got the good points. And half, but it's the same principles I understand and, and it's almost like, you know, if you play different instruments, if you play a guitar and a, play a piano and you play a, a, a trumpet, you know, you play all these instruments and, and it's almost like one day you might put, want to play one instrument and you might be better at one than the other and you practice it and, and round and round you go. So it's all good, is the answer, in my, my view. As expected, a diplomatic answer. If, if you had to give one up, what would you give up? I wouldn't want to give up any of them. That's one of the great things about living with love. I don't have to choose. And if these Mull of Galloway fish were being submitted to the IGFA, how big do you think the various tippet records could ultimately go? I'm confident that all the records could be very quickly broken. All of them. 
because I've experienced it. I think between myself and the others fishing over those days, and bearing in mind, we, we, we would normally fish with about 12 pound island, which would probably be the, you know, the, the any class tippet. But I've seen all the records broken, and that was over quite a short period. So, and I know fish are there because we've seen fish, you know, we've seen plenty of doubles, seen plenty of 14, 15, 16 pounders. I'm not quite sure what the biggest pollock is that's been caught off of there. But any big pollock that's down there is capable of being caught in a flat. The, the issue is just around the skill of actually playing the fish and a, and a bit of huck and, and actually getting that balance between not breaking off on it and, and stopping it before it gets in the kettle. So definitely a world class fishing. What about if you bring a fish to the shore in, say, a cage and weigh and release it that way? No temptation there then to make a claim. Just to prove the point. <laughs> well, well, it's not, as you know, when you're fishing down the other, the other thing was a practical thing. When you're fishing down the Mulligarvey, you know, you're fishing along the bottom of it, you're drifting along on the tide, along, often we're fishing at anchor, but quite often we're drifting, and it's not that easy to get ashore. Personally, I'm, uh, I'm quite happy just knowing we've done it. Although, I'm sure others will, over time, others will register them, and, I think that's a good thing to do, um, if, if that's what interests them, it's part of, I know there's, that uh, after we've done what we've done, there's, there's people have been down and they've, they've taken fly tie to a different level, some locality fly tires and they go and do new imitations for bait, and some good fly fishers have been down there, and I think they're doing really well, and they've probably caught bigger fish and more fish than, than we were catching, because they've just taken on to the next level, so I'm pretty sure they'll, they'll, uh, They'll do well, and if they choose to, to register the records in, then that'll be their choice, I'm sure. As was said earlier, I was present when some of these record pollock were caught, plus I've also seen the degree of success that fly fishing generally at sea can bring. If my memory serves me right, on one of these days, you even outfished Ian's other boat with a party on board using conventional pollock tackle and tactics. I just hope that what you've done and what you've said here will inspire other people to try the same. My thanks then to Alan Everington for linking up with us here.